Amen. First Samuel uh, chapter 16, and I'm going to read the first 13 verses. We are uh, starting a series in the life of David, uh, the Old Testament king of Israel. Uh, but uh, he's, not, uh, he's not king just yet, uh, and uh, we're going to read from God's word uh, just now. First Samuel 16. Uh, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose and went, rose up and went to Ramah. And we'll end a reading at verse number thirteen. This evening we've in, I've entitled this message "Are All uh, Your Sons Here?" Uh, but I want to talk firstly uh, about fearing the people's man, fearing the people's man. Samuel, of course, who we read about there, was, was uh, the longed-for child of Elkanah and Hannah. And Samuel comes to the fore as, as the Lord's judge after the failure in the book of Judges, of, of many judges. Uh, he's the Lord's man. He's the Lord's prophet. Uh, he's his mouthpiece. And also a priest. Here in chapter 16 he's an, he's an aged man. And yet sadly he seems to have lost much of his strong fearless leadership that marked his tenure. Verse 2 shows that he isn't exactly made of steel. God commands him to go to Bethlehem to the house of a man called Jesse. And he replies, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Samuel is going to Bethlehem with a horn filled with oil for he's going to to find and anoint the new king. Uh, The context, of course, is that there is already a king. His name is Saul. But to all intents and purposes, he's gone mad. He started off well. He started off as the people's obvious pick to be the king. But now he's lost it, literally. The last meeting between Samuel and Saul is in the chapter before. And and we're told that there, there is an evil spirit within him. 
Chapter 15, verse 26 says this, For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel, well, he's grieved by this. That's what verse 1 tells us. How long will you grieve over Saul? He, he, he's depressed by this. You could say that in 21st century language. It, it was impacting him greatly. It, 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 was, it was occupying his mind all the time. We could imagine that he was having sleepless nights over such a thing. And God asked Samuel, how long will he occupy your head? For God has, for God has moved on. He's, he's a new man in mind and he wants Samuel to move on too. Samuel was not depressed by, uh, with how his, his life had turned out or how others had gotten off lighter than him. Perhaps things that might, that might upset us, you and I, when we let ourselves occupy our minds. Samuel is thinking of others here. No, he was grieving over a, a man even who, in whom he'd, he'd invested so much, yet he, this man had chosen to, to plot the rest of his life uh, his own way, not in the ways of the Lord anymore. He knew that the people under a leader like that would end up in deeper and deeper sin and judgment. And it bothers him greatly. Samuel is burdened for all the people because if they lack leadership, well, they're only going to go one way. If they're in darkness and cannot see, they're surely for the pit of destruction. Samuel is not the only fearful one in this chapter in verse 4, when the elders of Bethlehem meet Samuel on his way to Jesse's house, they're, they're trembling too, aren't they? And they ask a question. Verse three, do you come, Verse 4, do you come peaceably? Presumably they were concerned that the mighty prophet of God was, was going to bring a, a message of judgment upon them. Presumably they had, a, they had a guilty conscience even, or a guilty conscience for the town over which they presided. They knew what went on there. But Samuel is, is not there with a message of judgment, but one of peace. Peace calms fear. It always does. And those who, who know the Prince of Peace need never fear. Perhaps you need to hear that this evening. For there's hope. There, there's light in the darkness. There's, there's good news. Good news calms fear too. And the good news here is that God has provided. Verse 1. For I have provided for myself, a king among his sons, Jesse's sons, of course. I have provided, is in language, like a form of I see. I see, God says. God sees. He, he sees that his people are in a desperate place. He, he sees the true king that he has desired. And it's not the last act of divine vision in this passage. He's going to see more very soon. God provides, and in fact, the language is more than that. He has himself provided for the people. It reminds us of the last time we did a The Life of series, and that was in Abraham's, uh, Abraham's story when, when, when God tells him to stop with that knife and, and he says, I have provided myself a lamb. The good news overcomes fear. But it's not instant. There's, 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 there's a kind of patience needed here as well. Some people get a little agitated by what happens at the end of verse number two. Have a look with me. Because it seems more than a little disingenuous, don't you think? You travel to Jesse's house to anoint a new king, but you tell them that you're there to sacrifice to the Lord. Did you, did you notice that? But Samuel is merely concealing his purpose he's not denying 
an honest answer to someone with a right to information. That would be a lie. If a burglar comes to your door tonight dressed in a black and white striped t-shirt and a swag bag on his back and he asks you what you have in the house, well, you don't need to tell him that you've got a thousand pounds in cash. You can tell him something else that you have in the house. A broken television in the attic. Would you like that? You see my point? It's, it's no lie to withhold information from someone with no right to it. It's no lie, and no lie here was told, for indeed he did sacrifice this heifer, this ox. Of course, it was perfectly legitimate to travel to Jesse's house with a, with a heifer for a, for a sacrifice. It was a bit like a pastoral visit, if you think of it like that. In the old old economy, and the aging prophet and priest of God going there uh, to, 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 to sacrifice to God, inviting them all around there. And that would have avoided any trouble with Saul. The good news of a new era and a new man on God's throne of Israel is intended to, to drive Samuel from fear to faith, as any gospel should. As any gospel should. Perhaps you're in, in fear tonight, fear about the future, fear about when this current restrictive period is going to end, fear about, about test results, fear about money. M- maybe it runs deep in you. Maybe it's hard to move off the throne. It won't shift easily, that fear. But we have good news. We have gospel that dampens any fear. We, we have life-changing, joy-building good news. I, I tell you about it from this pulpit uh, all the time, not so much recently, but hopefully more uh, in the days to come, right? But this, 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 this good news is, well, the trouble with it is that it's not on the BBC News app and it's not on Facebook that much. So we forget about it, or it gets drowned out with other things. But it's, but it's good enough, and it brings peace, and, and God has provided, and he's provided a king. A king for your heart, a king for your life. Fearing the people's man. Now consider choosing the Lord's king. Choosing the Lord's king. Samuel sets out on the task of finding the Lord's man to be the next king, uh, the leader of Israel, the representative of God on the throne, the one who in chapter 13 verse 14 is described as the one, the man after God's own heart that God sought out. A man described in chapter 15 verse 28 as better than you to Saul. And so Samuel begins to seek him out and, and he does the obvious thing. He starts with the obvious son. If our present queen uh, dies, uh, she will not be replaced with with Edward or Andrew, but with Charles, the the eldest son. Samuel goes down to Jesse's house, heifer and two. He invites him out to the sacrifice. He commands the elders to consecrate themselves, probably to wash and to wash their their clothes. God is holy, and uh, so for holy business, you consecrate yourself. And Samuel consecrates Jesse and his sons, and and the first son is the obvious place to look, of course. First son, Eliab, he moves into the limelight, into the spotlight, and God says, it's not him. We don't know how God speaks precisely to his prophets in the Old Testament. This is not revealed to us in any full form. Was it the Urim and Thummim, those um, devices which are probably two sticks or, or stones, one white and the other black, uh, that, was, um, that were given a yes or no answer to the priest, uh, that, that were placed inside his breastplate, inside part of his garment? They're mentioned in Exodus 28. Uh, could have been. 
It certainly seems like more of a conversation than that here, and indeed in lots of places in the Old Testament. I would imagine it's more more conversational than just a yes or no. Hebrews teaches us in the very first chapter that today God speaks by his Son through the Holy Spirit in the Bible. But back then, we don't know the exact mechanics, right? But the point here is, let's not miss the point, it's not Eliab. It's not him. And again, there's a lesson here in the workings of God that the people had already had their man. He was tall and he looked apart and he seemed great for a while, but then he failed spectacularly. And aren't we all prone just a little to physical priority like that? Think about the way you, the way your eye react to something that catches our eye. Maybe a tall man with broad shoulders and a nice shirt that fits the bell for this rule that you, you, you think about. Or, or an attractive woman or a nice house or a, a sporty looking car or a dress that you just have to have because it's caught your eye. We're easy to convince, aren't we? Beauty gets us that way. We, when perhaps this is not God's way at all. It's often not God's way at all, by the way. That's the, that's the lesson of this passage. It's also a reminder to be careful what we set our hearts on. Be careful what we set our hearts on. Be careful what impresses your eye. It's not a great judge, according to this, according to God's word. Thirdly, consider learning from the youth's anointing. Learning from the youth's anointing. What we learn is that God doesn't see as people sees. Uh, it's not a, a handsome king that God is after as a kind of poster boy that's got the right sort of build. You know, God's seeing is important here. And, and we're told very clearly that he sees deep. He sees deep. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It says there in verse 7. Eliab, I imagine, sheepishly steps out of the spotlight and in comes number two son, Abinadab. He passes by Samuel, but it's not him. And they haven't learned, have they? They're still trying the same old human rule of age order. Uh, No sense of, you know, Jesse, tell us this. Which of your sons would you say knows the Lord best? You know what, Jesse, tell us this. Which of your sons is the most devoted to the Lord God. Which of your sons lives in the clearest expectation of the coming Messiah? No, we'll send in Shama, number three. But it's not him either. And the Lord has not chosen him. That's important language there, isn't it? God chooses. He's the one who has decided. It's not a democracy, okay? It's a theocracy. He's the one who, is, who has elected the next king long ago. And after seven sons, none of them fit the bill. And almost embarrassingly, Samuel has to ask Jesse if this is all of his sons. I mean, surely that that was all of his sons. I mean, but no, there is another. And he's so young and small and forgotten that he isn't even here to see one of his big brothers anointed king. That tells you how far down the pecking order he is. He's out with the sheep. He's out doing the dirty work with the dumb animals. And Samuel says, we won't sit down till he gets here. This is urgent. 
And when he comes, well, he's, he's ruddy. That word means glowing with health. It's like red in the Hebrew. In the original, it means he's, he's, he looks like he's full of life. But he's so young and small. But sure enough, he's the one. And Samuel anoints him in front of all of his brothers. And you have to imagine that scene, don't you, in your mind's eye there. Their shock, their jealousy, their, are you serious? Their disbelief. What's going on? What's going on is this. God looks deep. And he sees a heart devoted to him. He doesn't see a perfect man for no such one exists until the one that we're waiting for in the Bible, right? But, but, but one who desires to be before God all that God can make him to be. What does God see when he looks at your heart? What does he see? Does he see pretense? Does he see putting up a good shoe? Does he see living to please other people? Does he see, uh, um, does he see someone who, who longs to know God, to read his word? Who, who longs to, to be what God can make him or her to be? Someone who knows the gospel, who knows that, 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 that they're needy. Who needs God to provide And Samuel pours the horn of oil over him. The spirit of the Lord, we read, comes upon him from this day forward to empower David, to to lead, to to give David wisdom, to show David the way of God. And notice the very next verse, verse 14, we didn't read it. It says this, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. God's like moved on, hasn't he? He's went from Saul and now the spirit of the Lord rests on David. And in this we learn, don't we, that God prefers the weak. He prefers to use the weak. A lesson that we're told time and time again in the Bible, and yet we, we forget it, don't we? And we're told why as well in the Bible. We're told that he, he, it's so that none will take his glory. No one siphons off a little bit of God's glory. Takes the sort of icing off the cake. No, no, it's his glory. Don't despise what God enables you to do. Maybe you're able to witness for him to your neighbours. Maybe you're having a chat with someone down at work and you think, you know, it's, it's nothing. It's not on TV. There's no cue for the book deal of your life. It's not told in front of thousands. You, you've no Twitter following worth, worth uh, talking about, right? But God often does mighty things without any thunder or lightning bolts. He does. The witness of a grandmother the parent reading their Bible and the children notice and they know this must really be important to mom and dad. The faithfulness of, of that person is just always there. When we come to church, why are they always there? The quiet, unseen, unspoken things that people notice. Like God uses. When he uses the unknown, when he, when he acts in a, in a nowhere, uh, in a nobody, uh, in a no, no place on earth like, like Bethlehem. Jesus, of course, was a boy too. He was just a baby boy. And yet, it's known when he's still a boy who he really is. Mary knows, the shepherds know, the wise men know because they bring their gifts, don't they? They bring gold because he's the king. He was born in David's lineage which God chose and preserved all those years. And he's the one who the spirit of the Lord dwells in without measure. 
who makes his followers men and women empowered permanently by the same third person of the Trinity, giving them a, a new heart to replace their heart of stone, working deep in us in heart surgery when he saves us and as he continues to work in us. The author says, from this day forward, at the end of verse 13, from that day forward, because David at this point isn't king in any actual sense. I don't know if you realize that, but he, he's, been a, he's been anointed, right? But he has to wait about 15 years before he gets a seat on the throne. And lessons for, da- for David here, for sure, in, in waiting for that. He, he's the anointed one, but he's not there yet, right? How hard was that? Anointed king today and back to the sheep tomorrow. Maybe even back to the sheep this afternoon. I wonder what sort of conversations went on in Jesse's house that day. I mean, how does he live for the next 15 years in that sort of already but not yet status of being king? How does he, how does he conduct himself? I mean, imagine that, that, you have to imagine that's got to be difficult. It's like being engaged and waiting to be married for years and years. Or, or it's like being a, a Christian and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, but having to wait until it's fully come. Isn't it? Until the whole of our salvation is made complete in in, in all of its glorified fullness. Waiting on in a world filled with the consequences of the fall. And by God's spirit he enables him, uh, he enables, enables us by uniting us to Christ. Working on us on the inside where people don't immediately see but God does. I wonder... I wonder if you look into your heart, what do you see? Yes, we can pretend for each other all day long. We could make a sport of it. We could be in the Olympics if they have them this year. But before God, what is there? Who are you? What is your desire like for him? Ask him, won't you? Ask him to work to make it real, to change your heart, to change my heart, to to lean us towards Christ still further, to point us in his direction so we can live in his direction. Because man looks in the outward appearance, but God looks in the heart and what God thinks really matters. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for your word to our hearts. Guide us. And enable us to live for you. Work in our hearts that surgery that only you can do. And we ask this in our Saviour's name. Amen. I'm going to post up a link now for a song which I suggest you can listen to on the Facebook and on the WhatsApp group. And aside from that, may God bless you and have a good week. And we hope to see you again soon. Amen.